So as we've been hearing, as we've worked through this Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus came on the scene with a very focused and precise message. And that focused and precise message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, in preaching this message, was reiterating the call of God to the peoples throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He wasn't preaching something new. He was continuing on in the line of that which was already preached. Turn away from sin. Turn to God in faith. That has been the message from the beginning to now. Turn away from sin. Turn to God in faith. And this because, as Jesus said in his, in his sermon, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In repenting or turning from your sin and turning to God in faith, turning to Christ in faith, one enters into the kingdom of heaven. And so Christ went around preaching this most important sermon. And he adorned this most important sermon with deeds of compassion. As he healed people from their diseases, as he healed people from their afflictions, tremendous crowds formed around Jesus and followed him wherever he went. And so on this particular day that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Jesus, he ascended the mountain in much the same way as Moses did thousands of years earlier. And he proclaimed the very words of God to the people once again, as Moses did thousands of years earlier. And while Jesus will cover a number of subjects in this sermon, it is two chapters long, three chapters long, He begins by answering a question that might have arisen among those who had listened to and heeded his initial call to repentance. And so he begins by addressing those who might hear his words and actually believe them. Someone who might then ask themselves, okay, I believe, I want to repent, I want to enter into this kingdom, I want to be a citizen, but how can I know if I'm a citizen of the kingdom? How can I know... What signs need to be in me if I'm going to know that I'm one of those people who have truly repented, turned from sin, and turned to the Lord? How can I know if I've truly bowed my knee to the king of the kingdom? And so Jesus will answer this question by revealing eight kingdom qualities or beatitudes. So contrary to popular belief, this section of text is not uh, a list of eight separate groups of people who are blessed by the Lord because of their difficult positions like poverty or suffering or mourning or persecution. But instead, these Beatitudes describe one group. They are eight qualities or characteristics of those who have truly entered into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus began with the first and foundational beatitude or the first and foundational quality of the kingdom citizen in chapter 5, verse 3, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he starts off by telling us that the kingdom citizen is one who recognizes their complete and total spiritual poverty before the Lord. These who are poor in spirit understand that they rely solely on the grace and the mercy of God for salvation, and they possess no delusions about any inherent goodness in themselves. They fully understand 
that no one is good enough and no one is righteous enough on their own to meet God's holy, righteous, and perfect standard. In fact, the poor in spirit will nod their heads in full agreement with the Apostle Paul's assessment of humanity in Romans chapter 3. Because they know it to be true of themselves that, as Paul wrote, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he summarizes this all in Romans 3.23 by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the poor in spirit are the ones, are those in whom the, their pride and dependence on their good works or their self-professed goodness is absolutely demolished and broken. They recognize their helplessness. They recognize their destitution before the Lord. They know that when they enter into the Lord's presence, their hands are completely empty of anything to offer Him. They cannot gain His acceptance by their own good works. They cannot gain His acceptance by anything good in them. And so they do the only thing they can. They turn to him for grace, mercy, and deliverance by faith. That's the first beatitude. The second beatitude or quality of the kingdom citizen is a byproduct of the first. Along with the recognition of your spiritual poverty before the Lord, we mourn over our sinful and wicked deeds, which is what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 4. Look at it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, the mourners are those who, when confronted by the perfect holiness of God, who, when they see the perfect law of God, when they contrast their lives to everything that God has revealed, they see how short they fall. We see how short we fall, and there is this deep experience of grief a racking inner agony as we lament our corruption and we groan over our acts of disobedience to the Lord who has been nothing but oh so good to us. And the mourner understands the wickedness that is our sin and the mourner expresses a godly grief over it. And contrary, contrary to worldly expectation, it's the mourners that Jesus said are blessed. Right? Where else do you hear but from the lips of our all-wise Lord and Savior that it's mourning that is blessed? And as we confess our sin, as we hate our sin, as we lament our sin, we are increasingly comforted by the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who atoned for that sin. He dealt with and dealt, dealt, uh, paid the penalty for every single one of our sins at the cross. He paid the full penalty, the penalty that ought to have fallen on our heads. Christ bore it in our place, and he drank the cup of the Father's furious and righteous wrath for, in place of, everyone who believes. And as a result, that putrid and revolting slave master's grip on us has been broken. We are set at liberty in and by Christ, forgiven and comforted by a grace that is greater than our sin. And if we truly grasp our spiritual poverty and lament our sin and understand that it is only by the grace of God in Christ that we have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
This will lead to changes in the way we live. It will lead to changes in the way that we act. It will change the way we respond to other people. It will change the way we treat other people as we live in this world. And one of the main ways in which God's wonderful grace towards us and recognition of that grace changes us is the promotion in the promotion and growth of meekness. As Jesus said in the beatitude that we're looking at today or the or the quality of the kingdom citizen in 5:5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now we're going to go to John 13 in a little bit, so if you want to be searching for that because uh, that's the example we're going to use to describe meekness. <clears throat> but before we get there, just know this. Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 11:29, "Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead or the deity dwells in bodily form. As we read in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Colossians 1, 15, we read that it's Jesus by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This Jesus in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is this Jesus. He is the one who looked his disciples in the eye and said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or to phrase it differently, I am meek. And it's Christ's, Christ's meekness that we, his subjects, that we, the citizens of his kingdom, that we who have bowed our knees, knee to him, the king, are called to imitate. It is, it is Christ's meekness that the Spirit in his transforming power brings us to live out in ever-increasing measure. And humanity, in its foolishness, masquerading as wisdom, assumes that it's not meekness, which we'll explain in a minute, that is the way to inherit and control the earth, but it is power. It's by grasping the levers of power, by ascending to the, the, the spots of governmental power, vying for all of the different places of power. It is, this is what the world tells us that we need to do. Power is the mechanism by which we inherit the earth. But Christ here has declared that the opposite is true. It is the meek who shall inherit the earth, according to Jesus. So, who are the meek? The meek are those with mild and gentle dispositions. The meek are those who aren't easily provoked to anger. The meek are those who, while they actually do have it in their power to act and respond, leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. They entrust their way to the Lord and refuse to repay evil with more evil, but instead they repay evil with good. The meek are those who refuse. They refuse to stoke the fires of bitterness and strife. And at this point in our cultural development, this is no easy task, is it? 
Everywhere I look, people, whether they say they're Christians or not, are consistently pouring accelerants into the cultural fires that are blazing all around us. We are living in a time of increasing polarization and then moving into and living in our own echo chambers and then screaming at everybody else that doesn't agree with us. We are living in a time when reasonable, peaceful, gracious discourse has all but disappeared. We no longer know how to speak to each other without descending into chaos and descending into arguments. And this alienation and bitterness continues to increase for a number of reasons. From our obsession with, the po- with politics of the day, politicizing everything, to our thin skin, to our pride in and love for self, we increasingly see anyone with any degree of differentiation from us with anyone with the slightest disagreement with us as horrible, no good, very bad people. And while I expect this from those who don't know Christ, they aren't poor in spirit, they aren't mourning over their sin, they aren't trying to live in, a, in meekness. I am continually stunned by how prevalent and common these traits are in people who do claim to love Jesus. I am dumbfounded by the levels of discord, division, and anger that professing Christians are content to live with. So many times I am taken aback by the issues that we are willing to divide and argue over. Enter the meek. The meek are those who are willing to bear almost anything so as not to imitate the ways of our wicked world. The meek are those who absolutely refuse to hold on to resentment with another person for any reason. The meek are those who have it in their power to act against another, whether to take revenge, whether to yell at, whether to respond in kind, whatever it is. They have it in their power, but they refuse to do so, and instead they take refuge in the Lord. They cling to His promises. The Lord promised that He will right all, of, all wrongs. And so they commit their way to him. The meek are those who have died to such self-righteous, self-centered, self-avenging ways. The meek are those who refuse to bear grudges. Instead, they hope to imitate our Lord Jesus. And you remember, right? Jesus is the one who, while possessing the heights of authority and power, went to the cross. Jesus had it completely in his power to act. He had it in his power to totally destroy and obliterate every single mocker who stood in front of him as he hung there on the cross. As these mockers mocked, as they wagged their heads at him, as they spit on him, as Christ was scourged, as they stripped him of his clothing, as they ripped the hair out of his beard, as they fashioned and pressed a crown of thorns on his head, Jesus at any moment could have cried out, Enough! And they would have all died. He could have annihilated every single last one of them. It was in his power to do so, but he didn't. Instead, Luke 23 tells us exactly what he did. He cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And meekness is true power. Jesus made this clear in both word and in deed. So let's take a look. Open your Bibles. John 13. I'm going to read a couple of texts before we get there, but open up to John 13. One of the great examples of our meek Savior. 
one of the greatest illustrations of meekness. On the night Jesus was betrayed, as his public ministry had now come to an end, he now focuses his attention on the 12 disciples, teaching and praying for them. And on this night, as they reclined and ate together, Luke tells us that the disciples got into a rather heated argument. And you wonder, what's this, what is this argument they got into on this night, right? Well, it's a doozy. Listen to Luke record this argument. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, and this is Jesus, said to them, the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Among the disciples on this night, there was an argument for authority and power among them. Who has the most authority? Who has the most power in, uh, among all of us? And this desire for lordship and this desire for power was something that was very common among the disciples. They argued about this more than once. For example, in Mark, it says, James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and asked him, teach, said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And the ten, when the ten heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see, the disciples were consistently trying to gain prestige and authority and influence over the other in hopes of using that position to gain for themselves. And Jesus consistently reminded them, guys, this is not an appropriate attitude for my followers to show or to act out. Christ consistently told them over and over and over and over and over again, like he tells us, that following him means a life of meekness. It means a life of denying yourself. It means a life of giving up that power and instead, entrusting yourself to the Lord who judges all things justly. And so on this night, when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus taught his disciples a lesson about what it means to be meek and to entrust oneself to the Lord. John 13. Look at verse 1. Look at the example given to us by Christ. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus has time and time and time again proven his love to and for the disciples. 
in both his words to them by teaching them and instructing them in the truth and his deeds that he performs for them. He chose them. He chose to be with them. He explained his works to them. He modeled for them the life that all of us ought to imitate. He loved them to the end. He loved them in two ways, both in time and in extent. In time, he loved them in the sense that he never grew tired of them. He never grew tired of their constant inability to not get it. He never gave up on them, even though they were bumbling fools who couldn't quite grasp everything he was trying to teach them. And now in the waning hours of his earthly life, he is still with them, praying for them, preparing them for his departure as he's going to leave this world and go back to the Father. But not only does he love them in time, he also loves them in extent, meaning he loved them to the uttermost as he will voluntarily lay down his life to secure their salvation. He will reveal the depths of his love for them by his humble, humiliating acts of service that he performs for them, both the service that he will perform for them on this night and the ultimate service, which is the cross, the display of the full extent of his love. So look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. We are given a lot of information here. Firstly, Jesus knew that his hour had come. The time had come for him to suffer many humiliating and painful abuses at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That time had arrived. The time for him to be delivered into the hands of men who would act against him with wicked intent was now here. The time had come for him to be mocked and spit on and flogged and condemned to death. The time had come for Christ to lay down his life for the sheep. And second, we are told that Christ knew that he would depart out of this world and go to the Father. You see that? Christ knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Death, in this context, is merely the passage from this world to the Father's side. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew exactly who his father was. Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going when all was said and done. And the text tells us also that Christ knew, and this is important right here, Christ knew that the father had given all things into his hand. Do you see that? This is something Jesus referred to a number of times in the New Testament. It is referred to a number of times. For example, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, we hear Jesus saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. In Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In John three thirty five, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John seventeen two, You Father have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh. And in Revelation 2, we read Jesus saying, I have received authority from my Father. Jesus fully understood his authority. He fully understood that all things were given to him. He understood his global, universal sovereignty. 
He understood his origin. He understood his destination. Now the question is, what would he do with this authority? What would you do with this level of authority? What would you seek to do with this level of power? What does Jesus end up doing? Will he obliterate Judas, the one who mere minutes from now would get up and leave the table in order to sell him out and betray him? Would Jesus put an end to the life of that backstabber Judas? Would he shut the mouths of all of his enemies? Would he crush the corrupt leaders into nothing more than a fine dust? What would you do with such authority? What would this level of power lead you to do? Would you use it to make people fall in line? To shut a few people up who don't see things your way? Would you use this authority to get revenge on people who've hurt you? Would you use this authority to silence your enemies? That is the opposite of meek. Using your power to get back at people, using your power to silence people rather than entrusting yourself to the Lord is a direct contradiction of the meekness that we are called to possess. What is it you do with the power that you do have in your life right now? Nobody else has the authority that Jesus has, but every single one of us has a certain level of authority in the different spheres of our life. What do you do with the authority that you do possess? How do you treat the people in your life that you have some level of power over? Again, as believers, our example is Jesus. He is the one we look to as we try to figure out how to live as citizens of the kingdom in this world. And Christ's modeling of meekness differs radically from the world's obsession with and usage of power and authority. So think about it. Who has more authority than Jesus? No one. His authority is unchallengeable. His power infinitely exceeds that of all kings, all rulers, all powers, all principalities, all dictators, all presidents, all prime ministers, all chancellors, all CEOs, all governments, all of them put together. And we know if we look through human history, we will see that humans have used their authority for all manner of wicked and terrible things. And this is because we are far too warped, far too broken to be trusted with power and authority apart from the Holy Spirit. We are far too warped to be trusted with power apart from the example given to us by Christ. It is meekness that ought to be the byproduct of the poor in spirit. It is meekness that ought to be the byproduct of the mourner as we realize that we are nothing. No, less than nothing. Meekness ought to be the response of those who understand our frailty, understand our weakness, understand our proneness to injustice and self at the expense of others. And here we see... Here we've got the example. Jesus, the perfect sinless Savior, the one with all authority, exercising his authority. How? He displays for us his confidence in his relationship with his Father and his recognition that all things have been given into his hands. How? By powerful acts of service and humility. Christ is our great example, and he had no pride. 
No pride in the way. Christ revealed his truth, this truth, a truth that we all must grasp and live out. Pride is no measure of a man's manliness. And to exert power over others in self-serving and proud ways is the very opposite of what a Christian is supposed to do. And so Jesus here acts in and with a level and a depth of power that is not available to the natural person. That of humbly seeking the advancement of others, humbly serving others, even when they are about to betray you. This is one of the most powerful evidences of the new heart. This is one of the clearest signs of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Think about it with me for a second. Is there really power in gossip? Is there really power in slander, unforgiveness, holding grudges? There is no power there. There is no power in argumentation. There is no power in anger. There is no power in vengeance. All of that is easy. All you have to do is let your flesh lead. Easy. But to forgive, to serve, to build others up, these are the true acts of power. And these are enacted and enabled only in those who truly understand who they are in Christ. Those who understand what their inheritance is in Christ, what their position is in Christ, what their eternal future is with Christ. Only kingdom citizens can act in such truly powerful ways. And if the one with all authority has shown us how authority is to be lived out meekly, then we should listen and pay attention, right? Christ displayed real power. Christ displayed true authority in his humble service, and he displayed it in the humiliating act of washing the disciples' feet on this night. Not just 11 disciples' feet, 12 of them, Judas included. Jesus washed the feet of the one that he knew would betray him to his death. And Jesus modeled his power in the humiliation of the cross where he died in our place so that all who believe in him might be set free and forgiven. Now imagine the power necessary to act in this way toward Judas. Judas, the one who would sell his master over to death for a few measly pieces of silver. On my own, in my flesh, I couldn't act meekly. Could you? Could you act on your own the way Jesus did with those who have hurt you or that you knew were about to hurt you? Jesus did. Has the one you are bearing ill will towards, the one towards whom you exert your power, respond with anger, seek vengeance over, have they sold you to your death? Obviously not. Jesus displays, again, what true power is in these circumstances. And so now it's up to you. Will you follow the easy ways of the flesh and fool yourself into thinking that you're powerful? 
Or will you follow the example of the one who actually truly is powerful, the one who has all authority and act meekly with true power according to his example in a way that only those who are citizens of the kingdom can? Power is expressed in humble service and sacrifice with and for one another. The deeper the humiliation in service, the more one grasps true power. So let's just imagine the scene. Jesus is reclining for dinner with his disciples. And one of them is about to betray him. And the others are arguing over who's the best one of the bunch. And to top it all off, they've been walking around all day in their sweaty, damp, nasty sandals. Conceited men with dirty feet populate this dinner party. Not the type of dinner party I would want to be at. And Jesus, their teacher, gets up from the table because he knows who he is, where he is going, that all authority has been given to him, and he does something the disciples would never have considered doing for one another. They would rather sit around that table in the pleasing aroma of sweaty feet wafting through the air than serve one another in the way that Christ would. The text goes on to tell us, John 13, 4-5, look at it. Jesus laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, in doing this, called all who say they follow him to a life of service to and for one another. He calls on us to serve one another to a level that is unknown in the world or even foolish in the eyes of the world. This washing, see, listen, this washing of feet by a superior to an inferior was an unheard of act. There is no literature in either Israel or the Roman Empire that ever describes that this happened. This is, this is, which is crazy, isn't it? No literature exists in Israel or Rome that ever shows a superior washing an inferior's feet. This is one of the reasons why this washing of their feet is such a stunning act. It just didn't happen anywhere in the empire. However, Jesus was truly a man of authority. Jesus was truly a man of meekness. And because of that, he was free to take on a servant servant role. And this was the entire reason he took on flesh, isn't it? To seek and save the lost by going to the cross. And Peter, in this narrative, he doesn't quite grasp this true power. He doesn't quite grasp this true authority. And so when Jesus gets to him, he recoils at the idea of Jesus taking his feet and washing them. Look at the next couple verses. It says, He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Peter gave voice to what the other disciples were probably thinking. And Jesus responds by telling them that there is a deeper significance to these actions. The foot washing is a pointer to the passion. An event that that the disciples would only grasp at a later date. This act of meekness, this 
deed of menial service performed by Christ on the disciples would pale in comparison to the service he is about to render to them at the cross when he washed them clean, and I mean completely clean, when he washed all people who believe in him clean, and I mean completely clean. This is our Messiah. This is our Lord. This is our King. This is our suffering servant, the lowly and Gentile Savior, the truly meek one with all authority, with all power given to him. He uses this authority to serve, and he is victorious in all things. He is, even in the moments of seeming weakness, revealing a depth of power, revealing an authority that is unmatched and unparalleled in human history. Not in a million years would the disciples around that table have expected their rabbi to take on himself the shame and humiliation of washing another, one, another person's feet, an inferior's feet. But Jesus had no concern for the social proprieties and niceties of the day. He takes on the dress of a slave, a look that was despised by both the Jews and the Romans, and revealed his authority in acts of voluntary service to others. Now, we can sympathize with Peter here, right? We can sympathize with his refusal to let a superior wash his feet. However, he refused because he didn't understand power and meekness. His worldview had been formed and shaped by his culture. But who really displays power and authority and meekness here? Whose power is truly exhibited here? Peter in refusing or Jesus in serving. And Jesus will explain to Peter the ultimate significance, spiritual significance of his actions. These picture what he will ultimately do for them at the cross. Look at verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If anyone isn't washed by Christ or cleansed from their sin a cleansing that is only available in Christ, they have no part in him. They have no future heritage with him. You remember a few years back, it was popular to do cleanses, right? I'm not sure if that's a thing, flushing out all of the impurities in your body that have been built up. Well, Jesus here says to Peter, I offer you the great spiritual cleanse, the washing away of all of your sin and the making, you, making of you righteous and acceptable to the Father. This cleanse is a big deal in Scripture. It takes the truly authoritative and the truly meek man, Savior and Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish this act. David, for example, prayed this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the Lord, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, declared, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, saying this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
After Jesus said this, Peter got it, and the pendulum swung in the complete opposite direction. Look at the next few verses, verse 9 to 11. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. See, when one truly comes to faith in Christ, when you place your eternal destiny in the hands of Christ who died in your place and paid the price necessary to cleanse you from your sin, you can have rock-solid assurance that one day you will depart from this world and head straight into His presence. You are washed. You are clean. You have been spiritually washed. You are made holy the finished work of our all-powerful, completely authoritative Lord who came to serve, not to be served, our Lord who came to seek and save the lost, our truly meek Savior, has ensured this. However, we still have to live in this world for a time. And we must live a life of continual repentance and continual confession, a life characterized by poverty of spirit, a life characterized by mourning over the sin that remains in us, a life characterized by meekness. And these are only possible for those who are in relationship with and fully forgiven by the Lord. And so Jesus said, you're completely clean, but keep washing your feet. You see that? You're completely clean, but keep washing your feet. It's like, a sh- it's like trying to shower at a campsite. Any of you ever tried to do that? Or taking a bath in the lake. You ever tried to do that? You're clean, but it's unavoidable that sand cakes on your feet and gets in between your toes as you travel from water back to house. Anyone? And so, you need to spritz a little bit of water on your feet. And this spritz is modeled by Christ in his prayer that he showed, that he, that he, uh, modeled for us in Matthew 6.12 when he said, pray like this. Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. Now, this in no way indicates that we aren't completely clean and forgiven by Christ. We are. It simply means that we must continually be confessing and repenting to our Lord as we live on this earth. The great Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the Christian life, one of the, one of the great things about the Christian life is that it is all repentance. All of life is repentance, a constant spritzing on the feet. And so Jesus, when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? This is the question Jesus asked after he had washed their feet. He got dressed. He called on them them to reflect on the significance of what he had just done. Foot washing and later his crucifixion are despised acts that he assumed, that he accomplished, that he performed for the good of others. And now Jesus sets forth the practical implications for the lives of the cleansed. In John 13, 13 to 17, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are the meek. Now you can imagine the disciples here, right? Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, We signed up to follow the Messiah. You know, the one that will lead Israel to freedom from Roman rule. You know, the one who will get us to carry our swords and go fighting and and liberate uh, Israel from foreign oppression. What's uh, all this business about foot washing? What's all this business about serving and meekness? And Jesus looks squarely at his disciples and asks, do you guys not get what's going on here? I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I am the king of the kingdom. You are the citizens. The citizens do what the king commands. The citizens do what the king does. And if I show my love to you through this and other acts of service, then you are to do as I do. And you ought to be washing one another's feet and serving one another. Now, this is the difficulty in the society we live in. On one hand, people respect the successful, right? The ones who used all of their power and pull to gain so much for themselves. And that pushes all of us in some ways towards self-fulfillment and towards the exerting of our power for selfish means as the goal in all things. However, Jesus' words here, Jesus' model here, his call to service and self-sacrifice and the utilization of our power to help one another is the meekness that we are called to live out. In the world we live in, we are constantly tempted to use our power to dismiss, to argue with, or to quell, or to silence others. If someone disagrees with us, we find it oh so difficult to use our power to serve them, don't we? But if we are to follow the king of the kingdom... We must put such ideas and cultural concepts away. We who know and love our king, we who have bowed the knee to him, we who know our future, we who grasp all that he has done to save us, we who know his example and his model are freed to imitate the king of kings who took it upon himself not only to serve his faithful disciples but even his betrayer. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek for it is they and they alone who will inherit the earth. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the model of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our flesh will battle against things of the Spirit. And our internal desire for power, our internal desire for vengeance will always be crouching at the door seeking to gain mastery over us. And we pray, Lord, as citizens of the kingdom, as those who have bowed their knee to the king, that you would bring to mind the realities that are true about us, that we are poor in spirit and that we have so much sin left to fight. We are in the same boat as everybody else. But we know, we know the promises of your word to us. 
that by grace through faith in you we are saved, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, and we have an eternal future. And because we know who you are, because we know where we're going, because we know that we are in you, the one who has all authority, we can live life according to his example, according to your example. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.